to everyone this morning. Um, it's good to see all, all the people that we know well and some new faces. So it's good to see that Christ is building his church. How you doing, James? Um, and I also, I wanted to say a little thanks to, um, for obviously Tim and Theron and Bob, they're always uh, faithful at the community garden. But uh, it was great to have some of the, the crew with us a few weeks ago. And uh, they brought a lot of mulch and stuff like that, and we did a lot of uh, things that day. Um, and it was pretty interesting. Um, there was a video when we were doing, serving the people and uh, we were street preaching and things like that. And during the preaching, uh, I didn't notice it, but a woman, uh, when we called, it was a call to repentance, and she was listening intently and uh, threw up her arms, and you could hear her uh, kind of crying out to God. And I don't know what her story is and what happened to her afterwards, but it was a moment that just kind of caught my attention that I didn't, I didn't even notice at the moment. Um, so, you know, there's, there's fruits that are um, being produced that we don't even know about. And so I, I just wanted to say thanks for everyone that, that comes out and, and helps with that. So it's great to be with you, and our family loves you all, and we're happy to be with you today. So uh, today we're uh, going, continuing the series through Genesis, and um, we've been going through the whole book of Genesis, and if you went through uh, this book, it, you could find uh, the gospel in every page. You can find our purpose and why we exist in creation to glorify God. We could find why the problems we have in this world because of sin and the fall of mankind. We can see God's uh, wrath and his justice and his patience and his uh, grace all at the same time through all these pages. But oftentimes what we forget about is that we can also find Jesus on every page in the book of Genesis. That Jesus is there in the shadows and types and shadows. He's the pre-incarnate angel of the Lord that we see uh, throughout these pages. And that's what I want to focus on today is Christ and redemptive history. And so uh, we're going to just focus on, we're doing 45 and 46, but I'm just going to be focusing on a, a, a few verses, and I'll be touching on pretty much every verse throughout the message, but uh, we're going to start with Genesis 45, 1 through 8. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to read the Word of God, and these are the very words of God. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. He called out, have everyone go out from me. And so there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And then he wept loudly. And the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were terrified at his presence. And then Joseph said to his brothers, Come Please come near to me. And they came near. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. So now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. So God sent me before you to establish for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive for a great remnant of survivors. 
So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has sent me as a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And these are the words of God. And let those who have ears to hear, let them hear these words today. And what we're seeing is Jim touched on the verse, the chapter before in 44, where Joseph is now testing his brothers. These were men that, were, uh, that had did evil to their own flesh and blood. And so he tested them. He, they put a, he sent them on their way. He puts a cup in one of their bags. Then he sends his servant on their way after them. And he says, what are you doing? Why would you do such evil to, to this ruler? And they didn't know what he's talking about. And they said, well, whoever you find this cup in, they will be your slave. And so here he is standing before jo- Joseph, this great ruler, and now they are in big trouble now because the cup was in the bag of the youngest brother, Benjamin. And so here we see that we see that Joseph is not restraining himself, but there's something a little bit more profound. Judah stands before him. He's standing before this powerful man. He knows that Benjamin now is going to be his slave. And he's standing before this powerful man that is second in command of all of Egypt. Now, Egypt is the conqueror of the known world. And Pharaoh was considered a god. That's how, that's how they looked at him, that he was literally a god. And so here they're standing before him, the man that he sold to slavery, and now his brother, his little brother, is now threatened to be the same, to be a slave. And so Judah feared that Benjamin, Rachel's only son besides Joseph, is now going to be a slave. And he offers himself as a substitute for his little brother. See, the thing is, oftentimes we look at Joseph's life and we say that maybe he was this spoiled brat that just kind of made all his brothers mad at him because he was, uh, he was a goody two-shoes and that he was the favorite and he was the teacher's pet and all those kind of things. But we don't see that in the scriptures here. There could have been a little bit of that because he is a sinful man just like all of us. But this is a 17-year-old boy that they sold into slavery. And so what we see in the scriptures is that he had a great character. God paints this picture of Joseph, even as a young man, with a a great integrity. And we see that it was his father who was the one that sent him off to go and spy on his brothers. And that's where he ended up uh, being sold into slavery. His father sends him 60 miles to find his brothers and to check on them and to report back to him. And that's when they plotted to kill him and then eventually enslave them. But what we see is that the problem is a little bit deeper. The story is not so much about Joseph. It's more so about Jacob and also Judah. See, the thing is, when you look at what, why he was the favorite, we see that throughout the scriptures there's this plurality of marriages. And God never condoned plurality of marriages. He made one man for one woman. And so what we see here is that we see in in Abraham's life, the great-grandfather, we see that he had uh, Sarah, who was his one true love, and yet he laid down with his slave. And the child that came from the slave was not the chosen one. It was the one that was the promised seed. You see that through the Old Testament. Seed, land, and covenant. 
And so then you see now his siblings now, and his, his, his children are now are, are, are producing life, and Isaac has twins. And what does it say in Romans chapter 9? Esau I hated, but Jacob I loved. One was produced, was not the chosen one. The other one was the chosen seed. Jacob then has multiple wives as well. And there's a whole other drama that takes place with that whole marriage situation. With uh, Rebecca, and, uh, with, with Leah and Rachel and all these other women that are in this story, in this family. And we see Rachel, who was his one true love. That's where Joseph and Benjamin came from. They were, came from his one true love. And so that was his favorite. Because that was the woman he loved. That was the woman that produced these children they were special to him. So we see how sin, when we see that when we do things against God's design, when we, when we commit adultery, when we have plurality of marriages, sexual immorality, all those kind of things, it produces destruction. When we go against his will, that's what we see happening in the culture today. Everything is anti-biblical. And so this is the result of it. And so they hated him. They hated their brother because he was the favorite. He was the, he was the child of the favorite woman, the favorite wife. And now Benjamin, in their eyes, is the only child surviving in this situation. And now he's going to be enslaved. Enslaved just like they did to their brother, Joseph. And so he is panicking. Jo- Judah is panicking. He knows that if he goes back to his father... And his little brother is not with him. He will literally die because that was his precious seed. And so we see now that he is trembling before this man who he doesn't realize is his brother. He's speaking the Egyptian dialect. He's using an interpreter. We see that in chapter uh, 42. And so he's standing before him. And we see that Joseph is seeing this. He's like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm the one that you sold to slavery, you tried to kill me, and yet you're willing to be the substitute for my little brother. And you can fi- find these emotions that, why, why would you not do that for me? Why, why him? Why not me? And this, th- these human emotions are arising, but you don't see anger coming from him. You never see that through, through his behavior. You don't see vengeance happening. There's this deep sorrow even in later chapters that, are, that you see later on, you see that he was the richest man, he was the most powerful man, he governed the whole, uh, the whole uh, empire of Egypt, he had all this authority, and yet he said, this is the place of my suffering. See, he was in the wrong land. He was wearing the wrong robe. He was under the wrong family lineage. Everything was flipped upside down in his life. And he could not control himself. And it says that Joseph was so overwhelmed by Judah's words that he was willing to be a substitute for his little brother. That he didn't wish to, be in, uh, to not be dignified in front of the other Egyptians. He's the ruler. And so he says, get out of the room. Depart from me. He he's, has all this pent-up anguish that's within his soul that he's about to just pour out. I mean, imagine this 20 years. He was 17 years old, and they sold him to slavery. 
They put them into this hole that was bottle-shaped. So it had a wide at the bottom and had a, a, a tight neck on it. So there was no way of getting out. He had all these flashbacks of all this torture and all these things that were going through his life. All the heartache and all the sorrow and all the suffering. And he says, get out of the room. I can't take it anymore. And so they leave his room. And it says that he began to weep so loudly that the household of Pharaoh could hear it throughout the palace. I mean, this is a man. What you know that for a man to weep and wail is, one, is not a common thing. It's not something that men try to do. And so this is why he was like, I, I need my privacy. I need to do something that is all this. I need this. This is, this is what God has given me to, to release this anguish. And so he cries out aloud and he weeps and he, he's moaning for the sorrow that he feels and all the lost years he had and the, the time that he could have had with his family and his father and his little brother and all the loss that he had, even though that he had gained the world. And so we see he calls his brothers before him and he says, I'm about, he, in, in the Hebrew language, so imagine that he's been speaking the Egyptian language. But now he's all of a sudden speaking in Hebrew. And they're like, wait a minute. And he says, I am Joseph. Now here's this, this royal authority that's standing before him in royalty. And he speaks to them in their language. And he says, I'm Joseph. I'm the one that you wanted to kill. I'm the one that you wanted to to destroy because of your jealousy, because of your wickedness. But then he asked another thing. The point of the story, is my father alive? Is my father still alive? And so we see this, this, is, a, this is looking for the, uh, this comfort. Is, is his father alive? Is his, is his family okay? His brothers are terrified and they could not answer the question. They're paralyzed. They're paralyzed of what's happening. They don't know what to think. I mean, for one thing, they were already afraid because they're standing before this man who can execute them at any moment. And they've just found a stolen cup inside of the, their bag, and he could kill them right now if he wanted to. But now he's finding out, not only is this the man who is, has the authority to kill me, but this is the guy that I try to kill. So you imagine that they're terrified. They're terrified. And then we see in verses 5 through 8, these are verses that stand as a theological high point of the account of Joseph's life. I mean, you're talking about chapters 37 through 50. A huge part of Genesis is dedicated to this story. But it's one of the most eloquent affirmations in the Bible regarding God's sovereignty and in human events. That God is sovereign in all things. That he is controlling all things. And even though man goes and, and does their evil deeds and, and follows their e evil inclinations, that he's using all things for his glory. To fulfill his purposes. The why, why did he allow evil? That's what people love to say. Well, that he could display his justice and his grace. Because all humanity has fallen into sin and all deserve his justice. If you want to say, I want justice, you all, including myself, would be in hell right now. What we need is grace. And so when you see human history is God revealing his attributes, his justice, his patience, his mercy, 
And we're seeing it throughout the Scriptures here. And God had worked behind the evil intentions of His older brothers to accomplish two essential things. To preserve life through Joseph's leadership through those seven years of, of famine. But also there's something else that's a little bit more profound that we'll get to soon. And so the question is, what's the purpose of this story? I mean, is this a, a story where we can, reject, we can re- relate to his rejection? So it's kind of like, you know, I, I, I can get that. You know, my, my brothers and sisters, they, they didn't like me. You know, they, yeah, we can find some of that there. But that's not the point of the story. Is it a rags the riches story like we love to see in movies? I mean, we could find that, but that's not the point. Is it that we can find how we can resist temptation? Of course, we can find that there. Is it a feel-good prosperity gospel message that says that even when people do you wrong, that they'll get theirs, and they'll get, you'll get your vengeance, and you'll get, be able to be like the talk shows when you saw the, the ugly woman in high school who gets all made up, and now she goes and brings all of her old classmates on the TV show and says, look at me now. Don't you wish you took me to the prom? That's not what this story is about either. This is not about look at me now type thing. This is something deeper. There's Christ in the shadows. John 5, 39, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you'll find eternal life. It is these that bear witness about me. He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. And Luke, he's walking with these disciples after his resurrection, and he begins to open their minds and and begin to explain the scriptures. And it says, then beginning with Moses and the prophets, in other words, all the Old Testament, he interpreted to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. Thomas Adams, which is a Puritan preacher, said, Christ is the sum of the whole Bible, prophesied, typified, prefigured, exhibited and demonstrated on every page. And Martin Luther said, no man understands the scriptures unless he be acquainted with the cross. And so what we see here is that this is the gospel in miniature happening here. See, if you look deeper into what's happening here, what you try to use for evil, God used for good. Can you relate to that in your own life? Can you look back in your life and say, where was these certain circumstances happened in my life, my own sinful behavior that brought me to this point of salvation. We can find that in our testimonies. See, Joseph was a shepherd's son, beloved by the father, yet rejected by his brothers, rejected by the people. Jesus, the great shepherd, the beloved son of God, rejected by the Jews, Rejected by people today. We see in Romans chapter 1, it says that they know there's a God. They know there's the truth. And they suppress the truth. And they believe a lie. And they begin to worship the creation rather than the creator. This is what we see in the scriptures. The sign of, father, of the Father's love was a coat of many colors. Joseph's brothers took that coat, dipped it in blood, so that it appeared that he suffered a violent encounter with a wild beast. But over time, Joseph was made to rule at the right hand of the king. He wore a linen robe with a golden collar, and every knee bowed before him, even his own family, like the sun and the moon and the eleven stars in his dream. Sound familiar? See, the sign of Jesus' rejection in the book of Revelation is the coat he wears dipped in blood. Revelation 19, even though his father was exalted him to the right hand of the throne, encircled with a rainbow of many colors. Revelation 4, 
A wild beast tried to devour Jesus in Revelation 12, but he was lifted up before his own family, represented by a woman clothed with the sun and the moon and the 12 stars. Revelation 12. After Jesus was exalted, he appears wearing a robe with a golden sash in Revelation chapter 1. And in Philippians, it says, Every knee shall bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, you see the connection here. You can either bow the knee now in repentance, or that day of judgment where it will be too late at that point for salvation, and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Even the atheist will be bowing his knee, confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Joseph was the beloved son of Jacob who was betrayed by his brothers and sold for, as a slave for silver. But we'll see Jesus. He was betrayed by one of his own for 30 pieces of silver. Joseph refused the sexual advances of his master's wife. Oh, but Hebrews tells us that Jesus can sympathize with all of our needs and all of our temptations and all of our weaknesses, for he is one who was tempted in all things. Imagine that. Jesus was tempted in all things while he was here on this earth, and yet he never sinned. And so it says we have a mediator. We have an intercessor that's praying for us because he understands our struggles with sin. But see, Joseph could only run from temptation leaving that woman in her sinful state. He wasn't the Messiah. He was not the Son of God. See, we learn that Jesus can change that woman's heart. He can cause her to repent of her infidelity and learn to love her husband. Jesus comes with a righteousness that that exceeds Joseph. For Joseph left her in her sin, but Jesus' righteousness can be imputed and to restore her and make her right with God. He's the greater Joseph. See, what we see here is that Joseph was condemned as a criminal, although he was innocent, thrown into a dungeon. And just as Joseph was in the company of two criminals, one was restored and one was condemned, Jesus hung on the cross with two criminals beside him. One was restored to life and one was condemned. You see the gospel happening in Genesis. In his innocence, Joseph had asked to be remembered. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we honor Christ's command to do this in remembrance of him. In time, God did use Joseph to be remembered. He caused them to be remembered, and because of the Spirit of God was upon him, he was taken out of the dungeon, and he was lifted up at the right hand of the king, ruling over all the land. Jesus rose from the dead and conquered death, conquered uh, all the, th- he took upon himself sin. He took upon himself the wrath of God that you and I deserved. And he did that on our behalf. And he is sitting at the right hand of God, reigning and ruling, sovereign over all things. By his God, such providence, God had sent Joseph ahead of his brethren to provide a place for them. For God made what they intended for evil to become good. But the thing is, the story is not so much about Joseph. It's about Jacob. It's about the promise that he made to Abraham and to his seed and now to Jacob. 
Genesis 46, 1 through 3 says, So Israel, Jacob, set out with all of his, that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. See, God is reminding Jacob of the covenant he made with Abraham and with him. God uses human history to reveal his character, to gather a sanctified people from the nations so that they would know him and and in understanding his justice and experiencing his grace, they will glorify him for all of eternity. So Joseph gave bread to his own family. Jacob arrives to Egypt. He's saved. And they stay in the best portions of the land. Israel's slavery in Egypt, the Passover and their rescue at all points to Christ's victory over sin, our election, Christ bearing the wrath we deserved so that we would be brought safely into the heavenly promised land. What if God did not ordain Joseph's suffering? What if, what was the greater purpose of the stories I mentioned? Is, if Joseph was not sent to Egypt, and if he did not rise to power, the arrival of the Messiah would have been hindered. Look at Matthew 1, 1 through 2, the genealogy of Jesus. It starts out this, the book of the gene- genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. doesn't mention Joseph's name. It mentions Judah, the one who made a substitute for himself, for his little brother. See, we see the lineage of the Messiah came through Judah. God sent his little brother that they hated they sent them away to, and they made money off of him to, as a, sold him as a slave. They thought he, they got rid of him. They did all that. He rose to power. He became a, a ruler of the land, was able to save his family, more specifically Judah, so that the tribe of Judah, where David would come and become king, and where the Messiah would come through that lineage, He saved Judah so that Jesus would come to save you. That's the story of Joseph. That was what he's trying to point out here. He's trying to point out this profound truth that you look at Galatians 3, 16. It says, if you're in Christ, you you are in Abraham. You are the chosen people. And we see this. If in God's providence, Joseph's brothers did not betray him, he would not have arrived to Egypt. If God did not give Joseph favor, he would not have rose to power. If he did not rise to power, he could not have provided food and shelter for his family. Thus, they would have died during the famine. If his family would have died, the tribe of Judah would not exist. David would not have been born to become king. Thus, the lineage of the Messiah would have been altered and would have altered redemptive history. Because all of history is redemptive history. It's God telling this love story 
that those that he knew before the hands of time, that he has fixed his love upon you, and that he has planned every detail of your life, every tragedy, every suffering, every moment of your testimony to display his grace and his mercy so that the only thing that we can do in faith is trust in him and say, I surrender all. See, what we see here is Jesus is victorious so that we may no longer remain in sin. We were trapped in Egypt in, the tra- in our sinfulness, and yet he brought us out and gave us, uh, brought us to the promised land. See, he's the, the greater Moses. He's the greater prophet. He's the, the greater priest. Jesus is the greater Joseph. He's the greater David. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Redemptive history, God is reversing the curse. In Genesis 1 through 2, creation is in a state of perfection. 3 and 5, the fall of humanity and slavery. In 6 and 9 through 9, the wrath of God through the floodwaters. In Genesis 10 through 12, the vision of all the nations. But we see that God is reversing all of this through redemptive history. We see in Revelation and in Matthew, Jesus successfully gathers his elect and in the glory we will witness a great multitude no longer could be numbered in every nation in all tribes and peoples and languages. And Peter says that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Do you see what he's doing here? He fulfilled the prophecy that he made to Jacob and to his, his ancestors before him that I will make you a great nation. You are a part of that. You are the church, the blood-bought body of Christ. And this is who we are. We see that like the days of Noah, the scoffers will come in the last days and they will be scoffing and following their own sinful desires. Sound familiar? And just like the days of Noah, when the world was, was lunged into with water and perished, by the same word, the heavens and earth will now, that exist now will be stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. We see that we were once fallen creatures, dead in our sins and trespasses, but through faith in Christ and repentance of our sins, we have been raised with him through faith. And in the power working of God who raised us from the dead, God raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When Christ returns for his bride, the dead in Christ will arise first. And then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up with him in the air, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so that we will always be with the Lord. And we see that just like in Genesis where he destroys the earth with water, that Genesis lost this state of perfection, the world lost the state of perfection, but God will purify all creation, not by floodwaters, but the day of the Lord will be like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works of the, uh, that are done in it will be exposed. But then there will be a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth will be pa- passed away, and he who is seated upon the throne will declare, Behold, I'm making all things new. That is what he's doing. He saved, he saved Joseph to save Judah, 
to, to bring the fulfillment of a, a great nation, the church. And you are a part of that. See, John Favell, which is a Puritan, he said, whatever God takes, be thankful for what he leaves. See, he may have allowed you to suffer in your life. He may have allowed you to experience hardships in your life, loss and abandonment and drug addiction and alcoholism and, and the list goes on and on of trials and tribulations. And you look back and you say, I wish I could have done this differently. But yet he worked all those things for your good so that way you look back and you say, I know I'm not the one I used to be. I know I'm not where I need to be, but I'm not the same that I used to be. And then there's times in our life where, as Christians, that we need to be disciplined as well because we, we fall into sinful temptations and we, we don't do what we should be doing or we do the things that we, should be, we shouldn't be doing. And we see that, that he disciplines us as well to sanctify us. But we must remember that God is working all things for his glory and for your good. And we must remember that the Bible is about redemption. It's a story, a love story. That, that verse in, in Romans chapter 8, where it says, those he foreknew, that word in Greek actually means that those he fixed his love upon, <clears throat> those he fixed his love upon, excuse me, <clears throat> those he fixed his love upon, he also predestined. He predestined, and those he predestined, he called did you remember when you heard the gospel? You heard it a thousand times, but for some reason that time it hits you differently. And then those he called and he, he justifies, and those he, he justifies, he glorifies that when we will be in heaven free of our sin and sorrow. See, you notice that's all in past tense. That he did that before the hands of time. He knew you and he planned out every, every detail of your life. And so what we see is that he was working all things to pull you out of Egypt, out of your sinful state, that the Passover, which represented those who were marked with the blood of the Lamb, were passed over and did not experience the wrath of God. And that is what he did for you and I. See, by faith we see the hand of God in the light of creation's grand design, in the lives of those who prove his faithfulness, who walk by faith and not by sight. The faith our fathers roamed the earth with the power of his promise in their hearts of a holy city built by God's own hand, a place where peace and justice reign. We will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward, till the race is finished and the work is done. We'll walk by faith and not by sight. By faith, the prophets saw a day when the longed-for Messiah would appear with power to break the chains of sin and death and rise triumphant from the grave. By faith, the church was called to go in the power of the Spirit to the lost, to deliver captives, and to preach good news in every corner of the earth. And so let us remember that if you are are here today, or those that may be watching, and maybe you didn't realize that this story is a little bit more profound than what we always thought, taught in Sunday school, that this story is about God redeeming his people. And then if you are not one that can say, I'm in Christ, today is the day to bow the knee, 
Today is the day to repent. Tomorrow is not promised. Life is but a vapor. So repent and call upon the name of Jesus and you will be saved. And you can experience the peace that passes all understanding. All the, uh, and you, the, the, the yoke that you, you would experience with Christ, being connected with Christ, would not be a burden, but will be a pleasure. And if those that are in Christ, who know that they're in Christ, rejoice. Rejoice because He is working all things for your good and His glory. Let us pray. Father God, we thank You for this Lord's Day. We thank You that You are so good to us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were unlovable, You fixed Your love upon us. When we rebelled against You, You were patient and long-suffering. That when we were trapped in our sins and enslaved in our sinful ways, that you were sending the right people, the right situations to liberate us from our slavery. And we thank you that Christ was our substitute. That he came off of his throne, lived a life that we could not live, and took upon himself the wrath that we deserved so that we may no longer be slaves to sin, but children of the Most High God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.